Hi everyone, I'm starting on page 84 in chapter 5. Later, Bethune would become an advisor to President Franklin D. Roosevelt. She served as Director of Negro Affairs in the National Youth Administration and was also an Assistant Director of the Women's Army Corps and Special Assistant to the Secretary of War. During that time, she worked on the development of the United Nations, an organization made up of countries from around the world coming together to solve problems and to promote and to promote peace. Meanwhile, some white suffrage leaders were changing roles. There wasn't much progress happening with that national amendment, so Carrie Chapman Catt decided to focus more of her efforts on voting rights in the states. In 1904, she stepped down as the president of the NAWSA, and Anna Howard Shaw took over the job. Like Susan B. Anthony and Carrie Chapman Catt, Shaw was a gifted speaker. And just like Anthony and Kat, she sometimes said racist things when she was talking to people in the South. At a 1903 meeting in New Orleans, Shaw was asked a question about voting rights for black people. She made it clear she thought white women's rights should come first. You have to put the ballot in the hands of your black men, thus making them the political superiors of white women. Never before in the history of the world have men made former slaves the political masters of their former mistresses. Racism wasn't the only thing dividing the suffragists. Some young women thought that NAWSA leaders were too quiet, too polite, and too patient. Years were passing with no real progress. Why weren't things happening faster? Maybe it was time to stop being so proper and ladylike all the time, and maybe it was time to include more voices. One of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's kids, Harriet Stanton Blatch, grew up to join the suffrage movement. She agreed with Elizabeth Cady Stanton that women should have the right to vote, but she really disagreed with some of her mom's other ideas. When Elizabeth Cady Stanton was giving talks in favor of educated suffrage that left out black women and working class immigrants, Blatch challenged her mom publicly with a written piece in the Women's Journal. Blatch argued that working class women had way more knowledge than wealthy women had about the issues that affected them, like housing for the poor. She said working class women needed the vote to improve their conditions. In 1907, Blatch founded a group called the Equality League of Self-Supporting Women for women who worked outside the home. 200 women showed up for the first meeting and demanded the right to vote. The women held all sorts of jobs. There were doctors and lawyers, as well as shirt makers, bookbinders, and cap makers. A month later, some of those women spoke in front of New York's lawmakers, the first working class women to do so. Blatch's group organized parades and open air meetings too. Until then, most suffrage leaders had been fairly well off, women who could afford to rent big halls for meetings or publish newspapers but anyone could have a meeting on the street. And that encouraged more working class women to speak up for their rights. Immigrants, they get the job done. Many of the women who worked in New York City's factories were recent arrivals to America. Rose Schleiderman was a Jewish immigrant who had come from Russian Poland and started working on the Lower East Side at the age of 13. She was 16 years old, and working at a cap factory when she began organizing other women to fight for their right to vote and have better working conditions. Schleidemann worked with Harriet Stanton Blatch and the Equality League for Self-Supporting Women 
drumming up support for working women's rights. She was a well-known speaker who traveled to different states giving talks on women's suffrage. Later in the 1930s, Schleiderman helped change New York State's laws to establish a minimum wage and an eight-hour workday. Much of the inspiration for these bold new ways of speaking up came from across the Atlantic Ocean, where British women were fighting for equal rights battle, were fighting an equal rights battle of their own. Theirs was a lot louder. In 1903, a British woman named Emmeline Pankhurst had started a group called the Women's Social and Political Union, or WSPU. It had a bold motto, deeds, not words. Okay, so deeds are like actions, all right? Actions, not words. For years, women had been politely asking for equal rights and getting nowhere. Pankhurst believed it was time for drastic change and how they were asking. One of those American suffragists was Alice Paul, a social worker from New Jersey who was studying in Britain and joined the protests. Paul was arrested and thrown in jail at least half a dozen times. That was how she met her friend Lucy Burns. Both women were arrested during a London protest in 1909. When the two friends returned to America, the women's rights movement fell quiet and boring, felt quiet and boring compared to the battle they had left behind in Britain. And there was still no progress on the national amendment. Paul and Burns thought it was time to try something new. In 1912, they went to NAWSA and asked if they could take over the group's congressional committee. It had been set up to push for the national amendment, but since the amendment wasn't going anywhere, the committee had all but given up. Paul and Burns intended to change that. Their first step was planning a parade, but not just any parade. This parade would be impossible for American leaders to ignore.